Hello and welcome to Talking Bottom. I'm Angela Pearson. I'm Paul Santa. And I'm Matt Brooks. We're thrilled to be joined today by a fantastic British actor and TV presenter. She got her first acting gig aged 11 and trained at the Italia Conti Academy of Theatre Arts. Her stage credits include End of the Rainbow, Annie, Grease, Boogie Nights and Calendar Girls the Musical. She became a household name in the 90s, tickling the nation's funny bone in sketches with Les Dennis on The Russ Abbott Show, before getting her own weekly sketch series, The Lisa Maxwell Show, on BBC One. She reportedly cannot bring herself to watch the US sitcom Frasier because of a misunderstanding when auditioning for the role of Daphne. She told the writers the script wasn't funny enough. But Hollywood's loss was the UK's gain. For seven years throughout the noughties, she played DS Samantha Nixon on The Bill. She's had starring roles in In Deep, EastEnders and Hollyoaks. She was a regular panellist on Loose Women and, despite admitting she had no idea how to cook, she made it through to the semi-finals of Celebrity Masterchef in 2018. But our listeners will perhaps recognise her best as Lily Lineker, the chirpy, bit ragged round the edges, owner of Richie and Eddie's favourite love bureau. Welcome, Lisa Maxwell. It's a pleasure to have you here talking bottom with us today. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit ragged around the edges today as well. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. Now, Lisa, we've inputted your data and we'd like to begin with finding out how and why you went into acting. What did you love about it as a kid? Well, I didn't really go in it to do acting. I basically, when I was about seven or eight years old and I grew up in a council estate at the Elephant and Castle and... Um, there was a girl who lived across the road in the flats opposite who was what we would consider quite posh. And my mum really liked the way that she spoke. And my mum spoke to her mum. And then it turns out this girl went to a school called Italia Conti, which is a stage school. Mm. Um, she had elocution lessons. Mm. So um, my mum said, oh, what are they? You know, uh, and, uh, and her mum explained. And so she enrolled me for what she thought was elocution lessons. But <laughs> they were actually drama lessons. So I'd go every Saturday morning to do these so-called elocution lessons but that's when I I think I proper, properly got the acting bug and then I auditioned for the school full-time when I was 11 and um, got a scholarship mm-hmm. and off I went and then I you know joined the agency with the school and they send you up for auditions and yeah. I became a full equity member when I was 12 and and sort of never looked back from there really. Fantastic. And were you in the same year as Bonnie Langford and Lena Zavaroni? I was yeah, yeah. I was same class as Bonnie and Lena um and yeah it was it was a really uh, there were only about 100 of us in the whole school in those days it was it it was quite an unknown um way to go with your kids education Mm. um and everybody thought like my mum was totally mad by sending me there but yeah I mean there were proper performing children there so it was the thing about the school was that someone like Bonnie for example who was working in Just William as Violet Elizabeth Bott that school would allow her time off to go and do these things whereas a normal school or you know a proper educational authority might have something to say about it (laughs) so um so yeah so Bonnie was there and Lena who obviously became very famous for winning Opportunity Knocks and and then obviously probably more well known unfortunately for possibly being the first person that anyone had ever known about having the eating disorder anorexia nervosa which at my school was quite commonplace but we I mean we didn't really know the name of it but we knew that there were girls with eating disorders and Lena sadly passed away as a result of that so it was um it was quite a prolific year for good ways and bad ways but a, a great training base definitely for going into showbiz. Yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And just to ask, did comedy draw you in more back then or was it straight acting? Do you know what? I've always been a bit of a Mickey taker. I think I, growing up, without sounding too heavy, I, 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 I grew up in a single parent family and I was born out of wedlock in 1960, la la. And that was quite a, a, a sort of stigmatised environment to grow up in. So mm. I learned really early on to kind of bat away any negativity or kind of or avoid any personal questions by making a joke and getting people off the track so uh, and I didn't I didn't realize that actually I'd been doing it until much later on in life and you know various boyfriends I had always said to me do you not take anything seriously I mean you know do you that so I think it's always been there yeah um but I mean of course it's a it's a proper skill isn't it when you look at the likes of Rick and Aid and people like that they're just you know, I've sort of dabbled a bit and I've had some good opportunities in that world, but I wouldn't by any means call myself like proficient as a, as a funny person because it's it takes years and years. I think you're being quite modest there, Lee. So you've got a good comedy CV behind you. Have you <laughs> uh, when it comes to comedy, do you prefer, is that, have you got a preference uh, over sitcoms or sketches? Because you've done both, obviously. So is there is there one thing that you tend to lean towards more than well, another? The thing is, Paul, I mean, when you're going on in the business, you go wherever the work is. And I love anything I'm doing at the time I'm doing it because it means I'm employed and that's always good. But I think I think probably if I had to choose, it would be sitcoms just because or ideally comedy drama, just because you get time to kind of really develop a character a bit more with sketches. I mean, one of the things I didn't like about sketch shows and I still don't like it now. And I, and I struggled back in the day even when I did the Lisa Maxwell show and the sketches were written specifically for me was that you have literally no time at all to establish a character, let everybody know how funny she is, and then deliver a tagline at the end of it. So everything gets like really on the nose, really broad, that there's no room for subtleties. And I think perhaps when you get like a chance to play a character in a sitcom, you, you get a chance to kind of be a little bit more, I don't know, a bit more kind of cerebral with the character. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. it kind of sounds like the sketches uh, due to the turnover of doing it. Like it kind of has to it has to go for the low hanging fruit then a lot of the time. Whereas with sitcoms, you can kind of, yeah, as you say, take your time a bit more and sort of seed things a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I'd much rather um, I'd rather play the truth better over the years. I think I think for me, sketch shows were a great platform to sort of get my profile there and 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 sort of show people that I could be funny but equally you can learn some really bad habits with sketches because you as I said you've got to literally just sort of hammer it home from the get-go that you know and I really like you know things like the office and stuff that we've come to love over the years and um I think I will talk about bottom obviously that's why I'm here but that that was its own special creation because Mm -hmm. that managed to straddle broad on the nose fart gags with proper subtle clever character development i mean these you know these characters had real pathos you really felt the pain of someone like rick you know the fact that he couldn't get a girlfriend was hysterically funny but also heartbreaking yeah yeah 100 so, um, yeah. so i think well, that's why it's so unique you know yeah. Speaking of sitcoms, uh, uh, I promise you we'll ask you lots of questions about Bottom. I, I just wanted to ask you one before we ask about Bottom, which is, would you mind telling us the uh, story of how you uh, auditioned for Daphne and Frasier? <laughs> and what oh, happened? God, I have to open a vein every time I tell this story. It, um, what happened was, um, 
I just want to put it into context because it sounds like I was being really grand and crit critiquing the, the writing of Frasier, which is beyond critique, to be perfectly honest. But anyway, I had done the Lisa Maxwell show for the BBC um, here, and my agent had introduced me to a, a, a high-profile, big-shot manager in LA who um, said, why don't you come out and try your luck? And so I was a bit like, yeah, okay. And my agent paid my fare and, and it was all, all happened very easily and very quickly. And so I was sent around to a series of meetings at all of these big American studios, you know, like Paramount and 20th Century Fox and Lorimar and, and all of these, these, these places that you'd only ever seen at the end of movies, you know. Mm. Um, and everywhere I went, I got a really positive reaction. And that wasn't just through my doing I think it was a bit like it was at that particular time I'd sort of captured the zeitgeist a bit with Tracy Ullman was doing her sketch show in America become a big star I was doing a similar show over here and they were looking for what the, the next Tracy Ullman so anyway I ended up coming away from those 10 days with three offers of from big studios Paramount wanted to sign me up 20th Century Fox production company wanted to sign me up and Lorimar. And there was like a, a, this weird bidding war over who was going to sign me. And in, in the middle of, I've never even been to America on holiday and all this was happening and it was so sensational. And it, so with that kind of background, I then go to America, I'm signed to Paramount in the end. They, that, that was the deal we went with. And I'm given a car from their fleet of cars. I have an apartment that they, they paid for in, in Studio City. I have a drive-on parking space outside the Lucy bungalow, which is the I Love Lucy um, head office where Lucy and Desi Arnaz created that show. No one has a drive-on. You have to park in the street and walk on. You know, it's it was crazy, 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 sensational times. Yeah. So my agent calls and says, you have to go and meet every producer and writer on the lot at Paramount. Now, Paramount make Cheers um, and lots of other huge sitcoms. So I met all the writers from Cheers and I knew all of these people. So after about four months of meeting everyone, I then get a call about going for a meeting about a new spin-off from Cheers that they're writing for Kelsey Grammer. Um, and they're looking for an English actress. And my agent's like, they've just put this character in. There was no character until Paramount signed you. So go and see the guys, you know them all. It's just, you know, just to chat through the script and everything. So that was the background, just to put it into context. I'm sent the sides. Um, we didn't even use the word sides in those days. Everyone uses the word sides now, but back then I was like, they're gonna, they're gonna send me some what? You know, <laughs> what? They're gonna send me the sides, the sides of what? And then my agent explained what sides were. Just so in case our listeners don't know, can you can you let us know what they are? So they are individual pages from a script, the, the sides like this side and that side of a script, uh, as opposed to a whole script. Right. So they sent me the sides and in the, the sides, it said that this character Daphne Moon was from Manchester. So I said to my agent, what do we do about this meeting? Do it, 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 the script says she's from Manchester and They've sent me sides, presumably, do I need to learn them? My agent said, yeah, you need to just have a, make yourself familiar with them. They'll probably get you to read something. But they know that you're not from Manchester. So she was a bit like, Manchester, Manchester, just do you. They love you. They've signed you, blah, blah, blah. So I walk into this room thinking, they love me. They know what I am. And so I said, I'm happy to do Mancunian if you want me to. 
And one of the lines in the script, it was the first line, and it was Daphne Moon's entrance as she's about to go for her interview to become Frasier's dad's home help. And the first line is, she's ringing the doorbell, Frasier opens the doorbell, she's fiddling with her bra strap, she's sort of sorting herself out before she goes in, and he catches her, and she says, oh, you know, you caught me with my hand in the biscuit tin. And, and that was the line I um, didn't understand. And it wasn't like I didn't understand it, I just didn't kind of know what it meant. And, I, and, and it was probably really thick of me, but they said, do you have any questions about the script? And I said, and I mentioned that line, you know, kind of casually. And they said, oh, well, um, would you prefer to say cookie? Would that be a better way of um, delivering the line? Or um, so, so, so is your problem with biscuit or, or, or you know? And I said, no, no, it's, I, I don't have a problem with, the, with biscuit. And they said, but so you have, a, what do you have a problem with? And I said, I don't have a problem with any of it. <laughs> I just, um, I've never referred to my bosom, yeah. you like, as a biscuit tin. And they said, so have you referred to your bosom as like a cookie jar or? <laughs> and I, no, I haven't referred to it as that either. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I think there was quite a bit lost in translation. And I just, I sort of didn't understand it. And then, and then it became one of those things where you, it suddenly became all we were talking about was this flipping line. And I, I just thought I should ask a question because they asked me if I had any. I thought it made me look smart if I asked a question. I didn't really care. Yeah. And then it became about that anyway. So, so we did the thing and I did it with a Mancunian accent. And, I, you know, a sort of said, oh, you caught me with me. I'm doing a biscuit tin. You know, I, I, I did it like that. And, and, and that was fine. And, and, you know, I sort of showed that I could do, a, you know, Mancunian and everything. It was fine. Um, and then I left. And then the next morning, my agent called. Not even, hello, how are you? Can we swear on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. She, she just said to me, and my, my agent was this um, fantastic New York uh, Jewess called Sylvia Gold. And she said, and she was with a big agency called ICM. And we did the deal because we agreed to swap shoes. She said, I'll sign you up. Lisa, I'm telling you now. I got. I want to do a deal with you, but I, and I don't know where this is going to go. She said, but I just, if you give me those shoes, we, we can we can do a deal. She liked my shoes, so we swapped shoes. Um, she rang me up and she didn't even say hello, Lisa. She said, how can you fuck up to that degree? <laughs> oh, God. And I said, what, what What do you mean? She said, well, the, the, the meeting yesterday, she said, with... Um, with Paramount, with the guys at, at Frasier, you, you, you didn't get the part. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't, well, I, I, first of all, I wasn't aware that I was actually auditioning and there were other people going for it. I thought it was a meeting and da da da, da. And, and And I, honest to God, it, this makes me sound like such an asshole. I, I thought I was going to discuss a role that had been created because I'd been signed to the studio and all of these mad things were happening to me. So this didn't seem completely out of the realms of normality. Mm. Uh, and I said, so, so what, what happened? She said, well, they gave the pipe to somebody that didn't fucking assassinate the script. And I was like, oh my God. So that's what happened. Wow. And it was really, it's not even a funny story. It's quite a tragic story <laughs> because it, you know, I make a joke and say, it's not like it became a big hit or anything. Mm. It, you know, it couldn't have been a bigger hit. Yeah, but the thing is, going into that with the information that you had, like completely understandable, why you you thought that it was you were a shoe in. Um, yeah, yeah. And I've never heard of hand in the biscuit tin. I think I'd have said, "What? What does this mean?" 
say, if I, if someone had said to me, it was just a straightforward audition, everybody's going in, level playing field. And if they asked me if I had any questions, I would have said, no, I love this script. <laughs> and I would have left it at that. But it was a really weird thing. I, I, you know, I was 27. This stuff was happening. I was living in Archway in North London, getting these faxes because we did everything on fax in those days. These faxes coming through with the Paramount logo on them. It was just mind blowing. But yes, and I, I know people probably won't believe it, but I'm really glad it didn't work out for me because I would have ended up staying in California, which for someone like me who was like chronically insecure about the way I looked and things like that, I would have ended up completely doolally. I would have had everything done you know, I would have been, I've had ribs removed like Dolly Parton and I've had, you know, all, everybody, everything tied in a bow at the back of the head, you know. Yeah. So it was good that it, I, I wasn't able to kind of find myself in that, that very, very, very competitive environment. We're, thank you. Thank you for recounting the story. I, I, I apologise. I apologise for making you go over it again. Thank you, though, for telling it. Um, oh, you should have seen her face while she was forced to recount this, viewers. Yeah, she hated every <laughs> It is agony, I have to say, but it is a good story because because it's such a big show, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a wonderful story. I mean, obviously everyone's aware of the show, but as you say, then you wouldn't have had the life that you've led and everything kind of happens for a reason, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I so, think so. Um, uh, Keeping with comedy, um, obviously Rick and Aid are very well known for sort of being uh, formative in uh, UK alternative comedy. Do you recall your first sort of time experiencing it uh what did you go down to the comedy store and see an act or anything like that do you recall sort of the formations of alternative comedy i i do recall um alternate so-called alternative comedy which you know a lot of people have an issue with that kind of name anyway because it's either funny or it isn't and i remember alternative comedy really coming through and it was it was through the comedy store and all those those kind of places i was doing real mainstream comedy at the time I was doing, I did four series of the Les Dennis Laughter Show, three series of the Ross Abbott Show. I did like loads of appearances on Jasper Carrot, Carrot Confidential and um, all of these mainstream comedy shows. And I was really, I'm a stage school kid, you know, I was really intimidated by these very well-educated people that were, that had decided that comedy was for them. And it was a, a much more intelligent, subtle approach to comedy and I was really scared of people from the alternative comedy scene. And uh, I had been to, to see gigs and stand-ups and there, and I felt, I felt there was a bit like a them and us situation at the time. You know, Russ Abbott, for me, I think is one of the funniest men that has ever been on British telly. I really do think he's a proper comic genius and, and a brilliant comedic actor. But there was a, a bit of snobbery coming through. I felt perhaps around the time of, of alternative comedy versus mainstream, like people were kind of looking down their noses at little and large that were, you know, pulling in massive figures on a Saturday night. And you've got um, Ben Elton doing Saturday night um, live, you know, the, the 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 English version. Was it was it Saturday? It was Saturday Night Live, wasn't it? it ben was, I think here, here it was just called Saturday Live. Right, yeah. And I was doing, I remember doing an impression of Ben Elton. I did a, a character called Bonita Elton, who was like a female stand-up, goes, oh, 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 a little bit of satire, a little bit, you know, that sort of. And um, and remember being really scared about doing it because I just thought, who am I to take on these? These are really, really clever people that are doing great things. And I had a real kind of inferiority complex about them and us at the time. And so 
And also when I did the Lisa Maxwell show, they really wanted to try and bridge a gap between mainstream comedy, like the sketch shows, broken mm. comedy, and the sort of things that the comic strip people were doing, you know? Mm. And so they tried to make my characters more three-dimensional. The sketches were longer, which was a huge mistake because if you're doing a sketch show, I, I, I think, I, I don't know, I think there's a fine line between, because if people don't like the character or they don't get what you're doing, with broken comedy, you need to get off it and get onto something else really quickly. And I think we tried to develop the characters a bit more and give it a bit more kind of street cred, if you like. Those words were used a lot around that time. And so when I was asked to do Bottom, I was so flattered. Do you when... recall, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I recall, I recall almost like it was yesterday. My manager, uh, Mike Hughes, who was Russ Abbott's manager, Les Dennis's manager, Freddie Starr's manager, couldn't have got a more mainstream management who'd uh, been sent a script by the production company, uh, by, well, by the BBC, saying that they'd really, really like me to consider, it was a straight offer, consider playing the role of Lily Lineker. And my agent said, I'm going to bite the script over because they need an answer quite quickly because it's the last episode in the series and they're, you know, they're shooting as we, as we go. So my agent bite the script over and I read it. And I thought he'd sent the wrong script. I, I rang him up and I said, you know, this, this script you've sent over, I said, this character, Lily Lineker, are you sure you've sent the right one? Because it's like, it was like Patricia Routledge not available. Or what, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what? What is this about? And my and my agent said, he said, I've got to be honest with you. He said, I looked at it and I thought, what are they talking about? You know, this is not, this is, I've got the right, anyway. So we went back and we double checked that it was the right thing and it was meant for me. And they came back and they said, 100%, we want Lisa to do it. Mm. And this this is I was, why I was really flattered because Rick has wanted to work with me for a really long time. And it's the last opportunity and it's the last step of the series. Um, yeah, they really, really want me to do it. So I, I was so it was a huge confidence boost. And I thought, well, if they, they think I can do it, yeah. then well, I'll interesting, yeah. Because Digger is actually the first episode of series two that went out, but maybe they filmed it that was the final one they filmed then. Oh. Well potentially. Okay. I was good, yeah. right. So if, if they filmed it last, then this is probably a huge vote of confidence in the episode because they tend to lead with the strongest episode. So they might rejig things later on. They tend to lead with what they think is the strongest. Oh, so, I didn't um, know that was the first step of a new series. I, I didn't yeah. know, I just know that we had one opportunity to do it and it was the last one. So, um, so as I said, that's really interesting. It is, it's really an even bigger compliment, you know. Amazing. Yeah. Had you seen the first series? Were you already a fan of, of Bottom when you uh, when when you, when the offer came in? Yeah, I knew it the series because my friend Jan Sewell was makeup designer on it, and we were great mates. And I remember her saying that the that you know the audience absolutely lap it up on the night. You know, you never get studio audiences. You have to try really hard. But they obviously they're preaching to the converted. Everyone that was was in that audience, the you know like on the night. I think in Digger. I think there was a, I don't know if it was part of a warm up or not, but my memory makes me think that there was like a fart gag within like the first five minutes of the recording. And I, I never heard an audience reaction like it. It was woof. It was through the <laughs> roof. 
Um, and that sort of set the tone. So I was aware of the kind of show it was. I was aware of the talent of Rick and Aid. Of, of course, you know, who, who wasn't? Particularly Rick Mayle's nuanced character study, even, even though it's a very physical performance and a very a larger-than-life character, it was always, always real. So, yeah, I mean, and I, the fact that they'd asked me to be in this episode, I was chuffed to bits. And, I, you know, like all my mainstream mates like Les and that were like, well, you're doing bottom. How did you get that? How did that come about? And I went, I don't you know. I've just got this script and they want to work with me. So I'm, I'm saying yes, you know, um, yeah. truth be told, I would have paid to be in it. And, uh, and then, and then, so I basically said yes. And then I went along and then I got really nervous during, um, the rehearsal period because I knew what I wanted to do with Lily when I read her I knew that she couldn't be 27 which was my age mm. or, or actually when I think about it now she probably could have been 27 she probably would have been a 27 year old virgin I think <laughs> yeah do you think there was some chemistry between Lina, Lady Lineker and Richard Richards with both being virgins at such a late age but I think there, yes exactly I felt that there was chemistry definitely between the two, those two characters, I, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I have to be honest. I have the worst crush on Rick Mail anyway, <laughs> which, which was quite hard to contain. But you know, you turn up in rehearsals and you're like professional and everything like that. And, and I knew that what I was going to do with Lily would put any person off, um, <laughs> character-wise. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, I think. I think there was a real chemistry in that scene. I just felt that we all really enjoyed. I thought the writing was really good in that scene. Uh, there were no no changes, uh, as far as I can remember. Like they weren't, you know, often they're changing things right down to the wire. Yeah. I don't, don't remember any changes. So when you went into rehearsals, how much of the ideas that you brought um, when you went into rehearsals uh, stayed and how much came from Rick and Aid? They left me completely to my own devices. Um, mm. And I... And I thought when I turned up for rehearsals, 27, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't look like Lily Nilica, put it that way. And I thought I better set out my store really quickly because I can't, it's really difficult to play someone like her without all, because I was padded. Mm. I, ha, I was very specific about the suit I wanted her to wear. And I sort of imagined that she'd somebody that would have had her colours done. Mm. You know, she would have gone to one of those colour specialists and told her that she was maybe an autumn person or a spring <laughs> yeah. person or a summer person and she would have had all her colours done and she would have worn all the colours that went with that um, and I was even right down to the watch I said that she's one of those people that would have those watches where you can change the colour face to match what you're wearing mm -hmm. um, and I made, made the costume designer find me one of these watches with a, on a gold bangle and she did bless her she came up with it and, and I said, she's going to have mousy brown, hot brushed hair that she would curl back like she'd taken out of rollers, but she would do it with a hot brush and just brush it through. So everything was in its place mm. uh, because it was all about how you present yourself because you won't get a boyfriend unless you look like you put yourself together properly, you know. <laughs> and, and I don't think she's probably ever had a boyfriend, to be honest. It's interesting <laughs> you say about the, um, the chemistry, obviously, in the scene, because I've always thought it seems like Lily is ready to go out with Richie when when he starts saying you know you, you can kiss him and stuff 
yeah it's a smashing blouse you've got on and all that yeah, but, um... <laughs> yeah I, th I think i think she probably had a bit of a flutter down somewhere, <laughs> but um i i i think she was yeah she was probably brought up maybe i mean as an as a as a good girl who shouldn't shouldn't do those sorts of things so i think i think she probably enjoyed talking about getting other people together more than she could ever go that far herself and that maybe there was a kinship there because because he was, he was, he was very polite with her, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, he negs you, doesn't he? He gives you, but you respond well to the negging, a bit rag, ragged around the edges. You don't just tell yeah. him to fuck off. You know? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, I think she's a bit taken aback by that, but she's very polite. Absolutely. <laughs> I also, I think she probably needed, if I'm absolutely honest, looking back at it now, because she was so anal about every aspect of her personal appearance, I think she needed a good scene too, really. <laughs> <laughs> that was maybe her motive to try and meet someone yeah like I, we like playing around with what the backstory of characters are on butter so I, I like that you really thought that through about her look and everything and did the accent just kind of come through naturally for you when you read the script yeah, I just yeah I don't know I just I just thought she should be ever so slightly northern but didn't great really, voice didn't want to be northern wanted to <laughs> you know a bit posher not that northern people aren't posh, but I just I thought she, she everything about her was quite all about on the surface. Mm. I think do you know what she reminds me a little bit of? Um, God, she reminds me a bit not physically, but the way she presents herself, a bit like Shirley Ballas. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can you see that. How Shirley yeah. does with her hands, and it's all about presenting, and yeah. you know, and it's lovely what you're doing with your feet, with the fleck of what's <laughs> I just can imagine that the, 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 I don't know, there is such a similarity. Anyway, that's probably not very flat. She was absolutely like a real, real character. I think you know. The, I mean, Rick and Aid obviously wrote those lines. It is a fantastic scene, and yeah. you brought her to life, though. And that that is like in such a small amount of time, it's such a memorable character, Lily Lineker. Uh, so it's so of all of the characters that have been in it as well. You know, uh, all of the the. the the brilliant episodes and and they've, I think they've all, they're all slightly iconic in their own way aren't they now because we don't have Rick anymore and um and we don't we don't see the likes of that sort of comedy it was really brave wasn't it really really brave yeah very much so yeah Helen as well um who's you know become a mate over the years she you know she loved playing Lady Oblomov Oblomov Dov or whatever her name was and, do you not uh, remember the line <laughs> oh, I, remember, I just remember saying a wazel pair of jogs and I love saying that line so much um yeah la uh, uh, yes Lady Oblomov Oblomov Dov but I just remember that bit I can't remember yeah. you're giving you're giving some fantastic lines in that scene but Lady Natasha's full name I mean I I can attempt it because we wanted to ask whether you'd added in a smythe um because in the script there's one less oh my gosh. <laughs> I, did, I, did. So, I did I did a smythe yeah. I'll attempt it I'll attempt it so it's Lady Natasha Letitia Sarah Jane Wellesley Obstromsky, Ponsonsky, Smythe, 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 Oblomov, Boblomov, Dob. <laughs> Third <laughs> Viscountess of Moldavia. Yeah, it's so, it's, I mean, just incredible. And then yeah. obviously then Ed, Eddie coming in with Sounds Great, we'll have half a dozen, you know. <laughs> 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 <It's superb. laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to just literally, I mean, it is one episode of a, of a series that I did, you know, that I've never done one episode in anything where it's had such an impact. It's you, just one of those, those, those things that people always want to talk about. And I mean, I want to, I wanted to tell you about on, on the recording on the night. So I was really, really nervous in rehearsal. So I set out my store really, really clearly. I said to Rick and Aid, I won't be looking like me. So which because the way I look, it's not it's not funny. Uh, and and I and I and I've got I've got an idea for her. And they said, Oh, just do what you want. We know it'll be great. Don't worry about it. And so you'd ha I'd have to go through all the tech rehearsals and the crew would turn up and think, what's she doing? You know, she's there's a 27-year-old that's talking like she's about 50, sort yeah. of. And, and, so it was very, it, it was quite a nerve wracking experience. But on the night, everyone knew what I was doing. So I was in costume and I was sat in the makeup room and Rick came over to me and he said to me, I just want to say, if I say anything weird or I do anything strange or I, ju I, I just want you to know, I get so nervous that I just, I'd say weird things and do weird things. Don't be offended or whatever he said, because I'm literally, and he, he's an absolute bag of nerves and he's sick before the recording I mean physically throwing up and, you know so he gave so much so that we could get that brilliant performance and how generous though to come to me in the make a point of saying if I'm a bit weird or I'm a bit off or I'm a bit you know I say something strange or whatever it's just because I'm so shit scared would um, you see that sort of melt away as soon as action was called gone nothing yeah. no sign no sign whatsoever completely a man completely in his comfort zone in front of an audience making them laugh um, yeah. but but not like some people that you see or you know I've worked with people in the past where they just succumb to it and they, and they lose that wonderful truth that mm -hmm. Rick was able to hang on to throughout all of it just that he was just genius yeah you often you see people uh guest in sitcoms a lot and sometimes they sort of they're just there in the scene with the main people as kind of a bit of a stooge to them and other times as in your case they're very much their equal and they're throwing out funny lines as well and it's an equal match between the two what's it like playing opposite rick and aid in a scene like that where so you, your lines are getting the laughs as well but you're also giving a performance as good as theirs oh well that's really kind of you i i uh, that's really really kind I'm unbelievably flattered by that I I never felt m myself equal to Rick and Aid first of all they write this stuff as well so that's quite intimidating because you know that they have an idea of how it should look and sound and everything testament to them and their generosity as actors because they approach it like actors mm. we're all equal in the scene and we're all making a contribution they um I knew that my job was to be funny that's all I had to do. I had to be real and I had to be funny. And they enable you to do that. They completely enable you to do that. So it was a joy. It was a joy. And then, you know, on the night when you get your first laugh, you're, that's it. We're in. And I'm meant to be here. And this is, I've got my laughs on my lines where I'm supposed to get them. You're getting laughs, like massive roars on your lines where you're supposed to get them. It just felt like, everything went very well and right and i don't don't remember doing any retakes to be honest brilliant so it was just one take that i think so i mean that's what you want on a i mean that's what we all go for because you can't get an audience to laugh again the same way so 
you know, everybody tries to get it like it's live uh, and you turn up and you and you go in there and you mean business and you've got to get the laughs. That's what that's what sorts the men out from the boys. And I don't remember actually having to go again on any of it, um, even the bloody name, which gave me nightmares. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I don't think we I mean, unless unless I mean, I know you've spoken to Ed, Ed by unless I mean, he'll, he'll probably, you know, say we did 25 takes and my memory of <laughs> But I don't, I don't ever went again on any of it. You obviously got a great reaction from the audience on the night. You can hear that on the recording. In terms of afterwards, did you get much of a response from people who'd seen the episode? You know, do you get quite, do you get the lines quoted at you much at all? Oh, yes. Oh, I get the lines. Or if any, if anyone, is, if people are bottom fans, they're not, they're not, they don't dabble in bottom. Take <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this the wrong way, but they're like obsessed. They're oh, like, yeah. <laughs> But you know, what I mean, people actually um, on Twitter. I still now. I mean, I get pictures of me. People are putting up all the time, so, and then quoting a line with with a picture of Lily Lineker. Um, I'm just trying to think what the line I get quoted most. Um, For some reason, I'm a man. Ma- well, so, yeah, where's well, a pair of jugs and the yeah. lady and the lady Natasha's name? I would imagine. Uh, the name is good. You know, there's another one as well. I think Sarah Ferguson, surely. Sarah Ferguson's quite a good one. Yeah. Oh, oh no, um, so, someone like Michelle Pfeiffer. And he said, Kim Bassinger. No. Kim Bassinger. Kim Bassinger. That's it. Kim Bassinger. And he says, no, Kim Bassinger. Yeah. <laughs> so how come this state agency obviously doesn't have Kim Bassinger? That's a ridiculous thing, but does have Sarah Ferguson. What's the <laughs> consistent? <laughs> what? Yes, exactly. Um, well, Sarah, I suppose the, the point they're making is that maybe Sarah Ferguson's a little bit lower rent. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Um, and she was also, had she just recently become available and she split up with Prince Andrew or something like that? Maybe she I was think that might have been the context at the time. Um, yeah. I always thought it's just a, it's just someone's name who's Sarah Ferguson because it's quite, it could be quite a common name. And yes. Eddie reads it as, yeah. as Fergie. But there, isn't there a Lady Jane, you know, in the long name? Is it Lady Jane Fellows or something? Did you say that's a real person, isn't it? Uh, no, it's Lady Natasha. But yeah, you're right. I think there is a Lady Jane Fellows, but no, they, it's Lady oh. Natasha Letitia that Helen oh. Lederer plays. But yeah, they obviously had, well, a, a had fun thinking of the names, didn't they? Completely, <laughs> and they weren't, and they were fearless as well. I mean, they just, I mean, the the slapstick element as well. I, I'm, I'm interested in that particularly because as somebody that you know we were talking earlier about mainstream versus alternative comedy had somebody perhaps like russ abbott done such blatant physical slapstick comedy i don't know if it would have translated as well i i just they took their cartoon characters obviously made them very very real but i just wondered because they had such credibility that they they could have done the most mainstream, broadest type of humour, and we still would have bought it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, maybe that's because, I don't know why that is. I mean, I'd love to know why such blatant la- slapstick, you know, like Eric Sykes was doing um, the, like the plan, things the like plan, that, all that yeah. physical mind kind of humour mm. back in the day. And I mean, that was actually very clever. That was probably not the best example, but you know, some something as broad as that done by a broad comedian might not have been as well received. Does that, do you know where I'm going? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you yeah. think that? Do you think the sort of uh, the cartoonish violent slapstick is what makes the show quite so unique, and why there's not really been anything like it since? Well, I, I, it is violent. I mean, I, I mean, 
you know, I mean, they're, they're not cartoon characters. They're real people beating the out of each other. So maybe, maybe. I also don't think anyone else could pull it off. Yeah. 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 I think that, that, yeah. It's, test, it's the writing, the balance of the, the crazy stuff that they did that you just... You know when when he's pretending that he's in the polo lounge and all that sort of thing when Lady Lady what Natasha comes around and it's so ridiculous <laughs> it it's utterly ridiculous and yet it's completely believable and I don't think, think many many actors or comedians can can do that. What do you think of the characters of Richie and Eddie because they're also quite unique in the world of sitcom, aren't they? And that they're the leads in something, but they're quite sort of perverse and grotty. They're tragic. They're really tragic. I think they they are two two tragic characters that are they're codependent on each other. I think you know, and I would and I would you know, one of them got a girlfriend, and and the other would just be devastated if he left. I mean, I, I that's I think this is the thing that we can talk about bottom in real depth because they, 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 there's so much pathos with the two characters. They need each other. They're two of life's misfits that have, thank goodness, found each other because no one would live with either of them. Yeah. But they, they live together and it's a, it's a totally dysfunctional relationship. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, physical abuse of each other, but they love, but there's a real love, I think, too. It's a, it's a love-hate marriage with a lot of domestic violence between the two of them. Ton of domestic violence. I mean, that like bashing each other around the head with frying pans and like you know, you just I don't. Even, you wouldn't get away with it now, would you? <laughs> of all the episodes that you've seen, uh, do you have one that's that? And isn't it doesn't have to be your episode. Have you got one that's a specific favourite for you? I think it's my episode. I'm really sorry. <laughs> you, obviously, but why wouldn't you be? You know, all those other episodes are not going to have the background knowledge and those emotional I, I, memories. I will, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm emotionally invested in that episode, but there isn't there that scene in the episode where he, he is this where he's got the manual? Is that where he, he has the joy, where he has the joy, joy of sex? sex. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that whole scene just with him on his own. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember watching it in rehearsals and thinking, how's he going to do this? And how is it going to not just be really seedy and horrible and like some dirty old <laughs> in a bed sit, you know? And like, and how is anyone going to laugh at that? That's just, it's just too gross. And, <laughs> and I just, and he just, I was going to say pulled it off, but that's probably not. <laughs> he literally, I, I understood and believed every single moment in that. And he wasn't playing it for love. I mean, he kind of was playing it for laughs, but it always came from the truthful place. And that he, that whole scene just on his own with that book, I just thought was wonderful, genius. I, I mean, as, as a female comedy fan, I've often found people are surprised when I say Bottom's my favourite sitcom because it's such a masculine show and it explores, as you say, very kind of masculine topics. Yes. <laughs> but like, what are your thoughts on the idea that, you know, that therefore girls wouldn't enjoy comedy like Bottom? Like, I mean, because as you say, there's just a truth there, isn't there, to the characters? I think I think it's a yeah. I think it's really brave. I think they're making men look a bit ridiculous sometimes. Mm. Um, mm. I, I don't think they're celebrating, uh, you know, men having a, a you know a quiet moment over a, a, an edition of Joy of Sex. I don't think they're celebrating that. I think they're showing that it's difficult for men to communicate with women. Mm. They they're, they're telling telling it from a tr- truthful perspective. I I don't think I don't think it's sexist. I don't think um, that it, and I think women like seeing men 
I also think there was a culture at the time that was quite laddie, which might have helped. But the fact that the episodes still stand up today, when we're all a lot more socially aware than we ever were, mm. I think is because they're not celebrating men sexualizing women. They're showing two misfits trying to fit into society and it's difficult. It's difficult now, it was difficult then. Not a lot has changed when boys find it hard to communicate with girls. And I think they were just a little bit kind of backwards and coming forwards with the opposite sex. And I, that's as far as I, I think, that's as bad as I think it is. Absolutely. I think girls love to see. I, I, they, they, it, was, it was real blokey humour I never felt alienated by it. No. Did you? Did you? No, never. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely fell about That's laughing it. at every every single moment in it. And you know, yeah. characters like you coming in, obviously, and then you show that Lily herself is obviously clearly a lonely heart, and you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and they and they're lovable, aren't they? I mean, they're still they're really lovable people. That you know, with you know all the flaws. All of the dysfunctional behaviour, you know, the beating up of the two guys beating up out of each other, you know, on a regular basis. And but one supporting the other as well, you know, through meeting a girl and, you know, helping him when the lady thingy comes around. And, and it, I say thingy because it's so much easier. And they and, you know, I just I think there's a lot of love there. Mm, yeah. Did you ever catch any of the live shows they did? Because they did the, the spin off live shows uh, and tours. No, I didn't. I don't know why I didn't. I feel I feel awful. I'm sure. <laughs> feel awful. Yeah, no, I feel yeah because I mean, obviously, you know, obviously, in retrospect, seeing Rick on a perform on a stage is not something we get to do now. Um, yeah. During so, your episode, how so? You were there for the whole time, even though you were only in the one scene. How long were you on day, set for? Every day, it was shot over a period of a week, and you were there from at the BBC rehearsal rooms every single day from nine till six or whatever. And then you'd go in on the, the end of the week, uh, Friday and the Saturday, have two days in the studio to record. I think it was two days. Or did we do the whole thing live in front of the audience? I think they pre-recorded some of it. I, I think, mean, you probably know I more than I would. On but. bottom, what they would normally do is they'd have two studio days. And the first day would be if there was anything complicated, like a fight sequence or a big stunt, oh. like a sofa crashing through the ceiling or something like that. They'd do that on the first day and get it all pre-recorded. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, they did. And they played it in to the audience uh yeah that was it yeah so yeah so it was it was a seven day commitment that's yeah. all it was in my life and i'm still here like you know years later talking about the show does, does it surprise you well yeah. yeah both asking the same question <laughs> does it surprise you that people are still talking about it 30 years later um yeah i think it, it yeah i mean i'd like to say no because but it, because it's it just doesn't happen i mean i i i mean, I, I don't know i think rick not being around anymore I think it it adds another emotional kind of layer to the work and that we'll never get to see him work again. I think that makes a difference. I am surprised. Is that awful? Is everyone else saying no? I knew it was brilliant when I was... <laughs> I think like you say, like fans of Bottom, like we are, you know, we, we are very much diehard fans. There's a, you know, there's no like take it or leave it. You either love it or, you know, yeah, you've I, never, I, you either love it or you've never seen it. Yeah, it's <laughs> one of two jobs in my career mm. where I'm still asked to talk about it in such forensic detail. <laughs> and 
I have to say, it's also one of the best paid jobs I've ever had. Is that a terrible thing to say? Because I remember being quite skint years later and getting a repeat fee, Mm. just turn up out of the blue for tens of thousands of pounds because the series had been sold to Australia. Jesus, that's amazing. Fantastic. And so I have a lot to thank them for because I was at that time... I was going through a really difficult time in my life. It was when I'd come back from America. I was doing Grease at the Dominion Theatre in the West End. I didn't know. I mean, I had some issues. I got like an eating disorder when I came back from America. It really profoundly affected me in a negative way, that, that experience. And without going into too much detail. And so I, I needed to tread water and just do what was right for my mental health around that time. And when that repeat fee landed on my doorstep, it enabled me to take a step back and look after myself for a while. So, and that was one episode. So I'm thinking, God, I got that for one episode. What must they get it for all of those episodes they did? And they wrote it as well, you know. So I have a lot to be grateful to Bottom for. A, because I get to, you know, I'm very proud that I was in it and I still get to talk about something I'm very proud of. There's only, as I say, one other job that I did, and that was um, a Henson film called The Dark Crystal, where I played the voice of the leading Muppet, Kira. And people are obsessed with that film. Like they, people that like that, like Labyrinth, and I go to conventions and things like that about it. So there's only two jobs in my life. And that was a whole feature film. This is only one episode mm, yeah. um, where people really, really care about yeah. the, what we did, all did back then. Yeah, I think as Ange says, it's I think it's one of the de- sort of definitions of cult uh, favorite amongst people. It's sort of uh, it has such a fervent fan base. If you were to sum up Bottom in a couple of lines to someone who'd never seen it before, how would you describe it? Okay, so if I had to think of two words to sum up Bottom, you can take several uh, sentences. It doesn't have okay. to be words. Okay, truthful slapstick would be my my description. And obviously, if if you would give me, um, if I I think just Rick and Aid. They're everything. They're all of it. They are absolutely the whole thing from top to bottom. They create these characters. They write these characters. They write great roles for the guests. I mean, I think in the episode I did as well, Kelly Hunter was in it. Kelly Was Kelly Hunter in our episode? Or not? Uh, no, she, no, she wasn't. She was in another episode. And I remember she was doing cabaret at the time and was so critically acclaimed for her for her work as Sally Bowles. And she'd been at the RSC and the National and it it's a jewel. It's a little jewel in British comedic history. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a great summation. Absolutely. Um, you've been in lots of different British TV shows though, of course. The Bill was an absolute institution in its heyday. You might not know this, but Richie actually takes the mickey out of the bill in one of the live shows. Uh, you, you never watched it. Yeah, like, <laughs> he, says, he says he's so bored he could watch an episode of The Bill without vomiting blood, <laughs> is what Richie says. Which has to be a compliment, right, when popular shows are, are put in by writers like that. <laughs> I think it's totally a compliment, because obviously it's instantly recognisable by an audience, isn't it? And, it's so yeah. it's that big that they can use it as a reference. Yeah, yeah Rick no, was actually I, in The Bill, wasn't he, um, in a three-parter? He was. Yes, he was. That was a bit before I joined, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like like a lot of good actors, it was, you know. All uh, the best actors have been in the bill. 
yeah well I mean yeah I mean I yeah that I I would say it was like definitely an actor's rite of passage and uh you know some obviously got Edward Woodward's done it and uh, Ron Moody and everyone I mean like Baby Spice was in it um Paul O'Grady did a guest it it was um a great show and a lot of people still really I mean that's another one that I spend a lot of time talking about actually people still because the reruns are on I think still every day or still really tune into it so uh yeah I'm really proud to have been part of that as well it was it was a, a great show I hope the repeat fees for that are as equally rewarding no nowhere near <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean they were you know I think anything that's sold to Australia is quite lucrative I don't know if I don't know why that is but all of my repeat fees from Australia seem to be the best ones I thought the bill was big down there they even did a Billy Matt- Murray special down there didn't they yeah Beach yeah it is it was it was massive in Australia um, I did a, I organised, I'm involved with a charity called Centrepoint, which is for um, young homeless people. And uh, I organised a massive bill reunion recently where we had like 30 odd characters and we did a um, sort of a, a Zoom and as everybody did during the pandemic and raised a bit of money for the charity. Um, and yeah, we had Dan McPherson, who was an Australian actor, who was like sort of airdropped into the bill because they wanted to obviously play to the fact that the Australian audience were were loving it and he came on and did the zoom call and you know we had a ton of people that came on the call from australia even to this day so yeah it was massive down there they did they did a, a, a billy murray um special didn't they where what was beach, the character be, uh, beach down beach. under was that That's what it was right. yeah beach beach down under yeah they did uh yeah, that Don Beach went out there and did a, a yeah a couple of couple of episodes. Yeah, it was it was a brilliant show, and I mean I am really grateful for that because that gave me an opportunity to kind of cross over a bit from doing all the sketch shows and all the comedy. I'd done in deep previously on the BBC and loved loved that with Nick Berry and Steve Tompkinson. Yeah. Um, and I then loved it. I loved in deep. It was <clears> brilliant, brilliant series. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Peter Dukes wrote that brilliant writer yeah so that that was that was fun about undercover coppers wasn't it about undercover mm. coppers and how far they go and I think there's been something recently of actually about undercover policemen sleeping with members of the public to, to which apparently they have it's part of the job when they go undercover because oh I bet it is <laughs> yeah probably at least said the better about that at the moment yeah we'll leave that one there but, but yeah that's what that show explored how far is it is it okay to go when you're undercover so yeah then when, then when I was asked to do the bill I initially was offered a part as Paul Usher's sister uh, but I couldn't do it because I'd appeared in it 12 months previously as um, Michael Elphick's wife. Remember Michael Elphick, the actor yeah. Michael? Yeah, um, yeah. I was I briefly played his wife in it. And then they wanted me to play Paul Usher's sister. And then I couldn't do it because it, they've got a 12 on the bill. There was a 12 month rule that if you you have to wait 12 months before you can appear as another character. So I couldn't do it. But the casting director said, I'm going to get you in. I'm going to get you in, whatever happens. And I thought that was really nice. And I thought, yeah, I'll never hear again. But and then within months, um, I was asked to go back and meet the exec producer about this new regular character they were bringing in. It was a straight offer, two years on the show. I'd never done two years on anything. And it seemed like such a long time. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't know if I can do like two years on something. I don't know why I thought that. It was a great opportunity. Uh, sounds really grand, doesn't it? But it just seemed like, you know, as, as, as gypsies, as actors, you never do anything for that long. <laughs> but really grown up commitment. And so uh, 
and then they explain what the character was about this this woman who was a forensic psychologist who uh, had a child by somebody that she didn't know but had been a child murderer and had reformed and turned his life around and so she was on a mission to find out if it was nature or nurture when people kill people is it you know so I thought oh this sounds interesting and then I was working with um Hal Bennett uh, the actor Hal Bennett who was coming in as a serial killer and I had a lot of scenes and I thought oh this is so great and yeah and then I think sort of seven and a bit years later I you know was still there and loved it you know and I was very, very, very grateful. I learned so much on that show. You guys watch the bill, or are you too busy? Oh, watch oh, Bottom. No. It's only ten. <laughs> How many episodes of Bottom were there? Just ten, I think. Eighteen. Eight. Eighteen. 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 Three series of six. Uh, I think we're all fans of the bill, and uh, myself and Matt have worked at Wimbledon Studios a few times as well. So, after the bill shut down, they would rent it out for productions and stuff. So. Yeah, There's loads of photos of the bill throughout the years in the hallways, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, are they, still, are they still up there then? All those? I think they've renovated it now, but back like so in sort of like between 2010 and 2013, any any low budget movie that that needed like a police set would go oh, down there, or a hospital, or the hospital yeah. with the green walls. Yeah. yeah. You still see now. Anytime there's like a street set or a back lot in an advert or a music video, it's always it's always Wimbledon. It was. It was Deer Park Road, wasn't it? The studios. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I have so many fond memories, and I mean, we spent so many years in that building, and I just I remember it being. I'd left. I'd left not long before the show came off, and I just remember how heartbreaking it was for everybody moving out of that building and taking down pictures. You know. Um, it was nice to know there were still a few left up, but they literally had to dismantle the whole thing. And, and you know, crew members that have been on that show from the very beginning had been their lives. And they were, you know, the whole family analogy that everyone uses about soaps and ongoing drama. It really, really was at the bill. And it was testament to that, that the show got made because it was two hours of, of drama with really high production values. And it was because of those people that that happened. And then when they were told that it was coming off the air, it was a real you know, blow and and so sad to just see. I mean, a lot of these people now you run into when I did a little stint on Hollyoaks and I've just done a, an episode of Casualty and a lot of them are on Casualty now because they're all so proficient at making great drama really quickly. It was lovely to see a lot of them still working, but it was really, really heartbreaking at the time because nobody really, it didn't make any sense to anyone why it came off. You know, we, we were given a whole bunch of reasons why and none of it really added up and I think at the end of the day I think it was a mistake uh, from what I can work out that actually it was a financial decision that basically ended up being an, a negotiation that should never have happened and then I think it came to a sharp point where it was either yes or no and 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 then with that you know thousands of people's livelihoods went and yeah. the view, you know favorite shows one of the viewers favorite shows was taken off the air and and of course, there's all this talk about it coming back and, and all of that. But I, I, I don't know. I think they'd have to, you know, I think the thing that worked about the bill was that it was it was one of those shows that didn't pretend to be CSI. It was those two sets of feet walking down the road, very, very simplistic. And the theme everybody was comfortable with. And you could watch it and have your dinner at the same time when you came in. It wasn't too taxing mentally to follow the plot. And... I don't know if we would perhaps nowadays, I think we expect something a bit more than that, really. Yeah, I think TV these days uh, is a bit Move more on. focused on grabbing your attention every sort of five seconds, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's designed for people with short attention spans. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is. You have to. Yeah. And I think 
because obviously like with globalization and all the social media and stuff people do lose interest very quickly but nothing allowed to breathe anymore is it no it's interesting what you were saying earlier about the lisa maxwell show and your sketches being i know that like there's one online that i could find doris potty the medium oh yeah it's a good it's a seven minute long sketch which you just would not find now no Um, and i think that's too long i think we could have got the scissors in there a bit more um we i mean I didn't know what I was doing. I, I mean, I wrote uh, a few sketches just to give them an idea of the kind of thing I like to do. Yeah, I think we should have got the scissors in there a bit earlier. And also, I, I'm not sure I was ready, really. I mean, I'd never done stand-up, and I was going out and doing my own warm-up before every show, mm-hmm. you know, a 20-minute warm-up with an audience yeah. before the show so that they could get to know me. So well, They're not I- going to heckle you, though, are they, in that situation? You imagine. Yeah, well, you know, it's still really nerve-wracking because... I mean, they, they might not heckle you because they're, they've got, well, you know, you'd like to think because their tickets were free that they don't think they've got the <laughs> But, you know, they can, they, can, they can not laugh, which, you know, is the worst yeah. thing one can ever do when you're trying to do a comedy show. So you go out and you try and introduce yourself and get a bit of yourself over. And I remember having to do something as myself in the show as well. And I didn't know who I was. And, <laughs> and I, they put me on this stall, this like light entertainment high stall which I'm only five foot two. And it, I, well, most of the time I spent worrying about whether I was going to fall off and if I would get back up and not look a twat trying to get back on it again. I, and I had to do this thing with Mark Walker, who was Roy Walker's son, who still is Roy Walker's son. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and he, was, he was represented by Mike Hughes. And we sort of inherited him as part of the package for my show, which is how a lot of it worked in those days. A lot of very powerful managers told BBC executives who was going to be in the show and so we kind of you know I was told Mark was going to be in the show and we sort of had to decide to what degree and how how we would use him and 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 create the space for him and I to work and so they did this thing where we just were a bit like a double act where he was a really sort of interfering pain in the ass type of person and I'm trying to tell a story and I'm trying to sort of shut him up like he's some sort of, you know, badly behaved child. And I just come out of this, this whole thing as like a really kind of bossy control freak who wants the stage all to herself. And, I, and this, is, was a, this was, for me, was a great example in how, how difficult it is to do stuff as yourself, doing stand-up. You have to be somebody that people like. They have to be on side and they have to engage in you and like you to let you take them where you want to take them. Mm. And, you know, what if you want to have a rant about, you know, British Rail or whatever, or, you know, the tube or, or, or you know, menopause or whatever it might be, they have to care about you mm. to, get, to get into it and get involved. And that takes years and years and years of perfecting and trying things out in front of a live audience. And I didn't have that. I went straight into the Lisa Maxwell show at the age of 27, never having stood as myself in front of an audience. And, you know, I'm proud that I did it because I thought it was a really brave thing to take on. But in retrospect, I think I should have said, I don't want my name in the title. I shouldn't do the Lisa Maxwell show. I should call it something else. And then when I know what I'm doing, put my name in it and be, you know, and and do it that way. But it was, you know, I kind of just went along with things that were happening to me and yeah I mean I'm glad I've done it and I, it created a great opportunity in America for me to have that experience but 
I have so much respect for people that do stand up. You know, the people that I adore, like I adore John Bishop. And I think the reason he's so successful and the reason I, I really engage with his material is because I really like him. I feel like I know him. I feel like I know that the sort of daddy is, the sort of husband he is. Um, and that's, that te- that, those layers take years and years and years of, of perfecting. And we've talked before, obviously, about double acts. And, you know, obviously Rick and Aid had that as a double act. And, you know, you work with Ross Abbott. And, you know, obviously Les Dennis and him were a bit of a, more of a separate entity, but they almost became a pairing, didn't they? You know, like, and having that comedy partner with you must really, really help, I imagine, when you're up on stage, you know, like, which you, you didn't have. You were there as part of different sketches. With, Completely. Yeah. Sort of, you know, both of us, like, airdropped into this situation, <laughs> not knowing how, how the other really works. Not having the trust, for example, that that comes with knowing that somebody, you know, there's, there's, I mean, a lot of people that work in comedy, you know, I've done some great pilots, for example, like I've worked, I did a pilot with Omid Jalili um, and Stephen K. Amos that was written by Simon Nye that wrote Men Behaving Badly, mm-hmm. was directed by Tony Dow, who did all of the Only Fools and Horses, a great pedigree, and it didn't get picked up. It was, it was a pilot that was done on BBC Two, first of all, then they recast some of the people in it, brought me into it, and then it was going to be made for BBC One. Omid was exec producer on it. And there are moments where it could have been, you've got all of these comedians, so you've got Stephen and you've got Omid, um, and at that point, Ashling B was playing a part of, because basically the whole thing was set, it was my, I played a landlady who had a house in Streatham, mm-hmm. and... Stephen K. Amos was a Nigerian character that was renting a room off me. And Omid Jalili was, was a, an Iranian character who was renting a room off me. Mm-hmm. And Ashling B. played an Australian traveller uh, who was like, on a, a backpacking thing, for, on a gap year or whatever, and she was staying in my house. And basically, Omid was running a multi-million corporation from, his, from this one room. He had a battered-up old Rolls-Royce, uh, and he ended up completely exploiting the new Nigerian that had come over but everybody played it for truth and I think that this wasn't that long ago so I think comedians now are a lot more generous than they were back in the day of like Russ and Les and people like that Russ and Les lovely people but comedians try to sort of when they're just like sort of like gag merchants if you like they try and be the funniest on the bill because it was always about being top of the bill. Mm. Whereas comedians now are more like actors. They're more interested. I, I this is my this is what I think. I, I mean, I could be totally wrong. And if you guys, oh, I lost you then. If you guys disagree, then jump in. I just I think that there's it's a lot more team spirit now than mm. it was back in the days when people wanted to top the bill. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you see a lot more collaborative collaboration between people. To, to, there was a bit of a kickback against um, the show. The people on the show mocked the week because that sort of encouraged an adversarial uh, atmosphere where you had to interrupt people in order to get your joke out before they could get theirs out. But then you see other, you know, you see more things are more about just people having conversations and, you know, there's less sort of, I'm going to talk over you so I can get my punchline out quicker. Yeah, because I think punchlines are nothing without you liking the person that's delivering them. I'm glad you agree. I just, I, I see funny people these days on the telly and they are, they're nice. They seem like nice people rather than gag merchants, 
if that makes I think, sense. I think people tend to have a bit more of an idea of the end goal of the team rather than, you know, trying to stand stand head and shoulders above everyone else to try and get noticed. I'm quite intrigued by the pilot you mentioned, Lisa. Um, yeah. Would you mind telling us uh, what it's called? And if it's, I know you said it didn't get picked up, but is it available anywhere to watch? Uh, it's called Navid and Johnny. Right. It wasn't transmitted, so I doubt you'll find it. But yeah, great pedigree. Mm. I mean, really good pedigree. I mean, another pilot I did where I played Ray Winston's wife. It was d- directed by, and it was a BBC pilot. So uh, directed by, God, he's, he's dead now, actually. I mean, he did all the great, great sitcoms. It all comes. Bob Spears? I played Bob husband. Spears. Huh? Bob Spears? No. The, the director? Yeah. Say no. again? Bob Spears. No, it wasn't Bob Spears. No, I know Bob Spears. Uh, no, it was uh, it was a bit. It begins with a V, I think. He had long hair. It was I keep thinking it's Piers something. He was he was very posh, very creative, brilliant man. Mm-hmm. Oh, it will come to me. I'll, I'll look at. I'll tell you what. I'll have a look and I'll let you know after on an email. I'll, I'll check it. So he so so Ray and I were playing husband and wife, and we lived with his parents, and we ran a junk shop and. We, uh, we're a little bit down on our luck, so we've had to move in with his mum and dad. And again, great pedigree. Ray was hilarious in it. And um, it was about to go. And then Nil by Mouth came out, the movie, with Ray in the lead. And his career just went stratospheric after that. And right. so a bit like, when's he going to have time to do this sitcom? And then he just said no, and it got shelved. But I have to say, it working with actors doing comedy is a, a much more enriching experience. And I, do, I think Rick and Aid approach Bottom, or approached Bottom in exactly the same way. They, did, they, were, they were real people. And they will always be remembered by fans of Bottom. It will be forever immortalised, much as, much as your performance as Lily Lineker will always be immortalised under those wonderful pads and that wonderful hair. <laughs> oh, bless her. I know. And that little tiny little paint and belt thing she had on. And the, and even even her name. I love her name. Alliteration is always good in comedy, isn't it? I guess it is. Yeah. Lily Lineker. Yeah. It's like a vocal warm up, isn't it? It's like red, leather, yellow, leather, Lily Lineker. Thank you very much for joining us today, Lisa. We'll let you go. But um, we'll just finish on. Is, is there anything you are working on or you, that you've got coming up that you'd like to plug? Not right. Oh, but yeah, the casualty episode I think goes out in December. So okay. um, this is a, a very. I don't know what it's going to look like. I've got to be honest. I am playing the surrogate mother of a young woman. Of my of my character's daughter was born without a womb, and I decide to have my eggs frozen, and I am a surrogate for her. And I'm playing. I mean, this is really upsetting. They did ask me and they said, would you be happy? We know you don't look it, but it's better for the story if we say that she's 60. I'm 57. And they said, it's better if we say she's 60. And I said, fine. So I've, I've got this terrible thing in my mind that they've gone away and done some weird thing on the gradient of the film and turned me into <laughs> some kind of Gollum type character. <laughs> um, but anyway, so you'll see me um, in labour as well which will be um slightly disturbing at like on saturday night while you're having your dinner that's amazing i'm oh, i look forward to that i shall record I, I really wouldn't look forward to it if you've got any <laughs> other offers i would take them <laughs> yeah absolutely lily lineker there we go you've heard it here first is going to give birth live on casualty <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> they did a live episode of The Bill, didn't they? They yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, they did a couple, actually. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us here today, Lisa. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been, a, it's been great reminiscing with you guys. Take care. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. 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 Bye.